What's going on, sports industry enthusiasts? Welcome to the How To Sports Show. I'm your host, Austin Scott, and I hope you are having a great day today and have even a better day tomorrow. And uh, sometimes life just says, hey, do everything in this one week period and you have no choice but to say yes. So unfortunately, we could not get an episode out this last week, but we are back better than ever. This episode is very special because we will be emphasizing on social media for the first time ever on the show with the digital coordinator for UFC, Mackenzie Nybert. She talks about her love for sports growing up and how she decided to go down the MMA route very early on, her undergraduate work at Virginia Tech and graduate work at ASU. She then breaks down her work with UFC and gives great advice on social media presence, branding, and natural growth. And on a side note, we will be back on blazeradioonline.com live on Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. back on March 19th after spring break. Until then, we will be still releasing podcast versions every Wednesday at the normal 9 a.m. time. And as always, I've been talking for way too long. I'm just here to ask the questions, and me, just like all of you, will be sitting back and taking in some top-notch advice. Enjoy, everyone. How's it going, Mackenzie Nybert? Thank you for hopping on another episode of How To Sports. I'm really excited for this one just because we haven't had anybody in terms of social media slash digital specific. And I know that's all you really do. And so you are the digital coordinator for UFC. Again, thank you for hopping on. How's everything going over there for you, though? Awesome. Thanks for having me. We are in the midst of a fight week like we are in any other week. So it is crazy. But it's always good to take a step back and uh, step away from all of the fight stuff and focus on some other things for a while. So thanks for having me. Happy <laughs> of course. to be on. Don't worry. We'll, we'll get a little more general here. So, okay. I like to start off with the same two questions for every single person I have on. So let me just ask you, do you have like a defining moment where you fell in love with sports or where you were like, oh, hey, sports is like pretty cool. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty passionate about this. Like growing you know, up. It's, it's funny because I ask that question too all of the time and I've never thought about it myself. I know I do not have a defining moment, but I, I just grew up doing sports from as early as I could remember. My, my dad always wanted us to be involved in some, some sport in some way. So growing up, um, the first sport that I really remember was like soccer and I was super little. Um, I did basketball coming up in like elementary school. I played softball that I really loved. I did Taekwondo when I was in, I think, late elementary and middle school. And then I was a cheerleader for like most of my life, a competitive cheerleader and then a high school cheerleader as well. So I was just always involved in sports from literally as long as I can remember. Some of my first memories are at like the old Yankee Stadium. Um, My dad took us to to games whenever we could go. Um, But yeah, I was on a sideline either cheerleading or because I wasn't very good at the sports that I did. And my dad was always my coach and he had no problem benching me, which was honestly like a very good like lesson to learn early on. Um, So while I wasn't really fantastic at many of the sports that required a lot of coordination, cheerleading was definitely like my bread and butter. I loved to perform, which kind of helped me like in my career, as you'll learn. Um, And I just really loved being involved in some capacity. So in high school, I focused really heavily on just cheerleading. I didn't really do any other sports, but I still was involved in like other varsity sports by doing like athletic training, which had like no medical knowledge involved or anything like that. It was just like bringing water and stretching and making sure athletes had what they needed. Um, but it was my way to really kind of stay involved with sport because I I was like very self-aware. I wasn't super great at many sports. Um, and so the one thing I did notice is that I really gravitated toward sports that had more of an individualistic aspect to it. Um, so, and doing martial arts early on, I, I knew like right away that I was super, super interested in it. It felt the most natural to me. And so it's, it's always been something I've, I've moved toward combat sports, anything that involved a martial arts base. Um, and now here I am. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're going to touch on that in a little bit, just kind of like, I know your main focus was MMA and I think that's really interesting, but it's okay. I think you're, you're not alone. Like most of us, we all realize we're not too great at sports to, to make it to the big leagues or whatever. And so, you know, that's why we're here. We're, we're trying to work in sports. So let me ask you this then. 
Um, when was it that you realized throughout your sports journey that you'd actually want to do something sports related for a career, not really playing sports, but just like working in the sports media industry in like any capacity? When, when did that happen for you? I was really fortunate to kind of always knew what I wanted to do from, I think the first time I like discovered journalism um, was in late middle school. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. And prior in early middle school, I had done some writing in my language arts classes. And I had teachers repeatedly tell me, you know, this is like, this is good, like creatively your vocabulary, like this is something you should focus on. Um, And then I, I remember writing for like a, again, middle school level newspaper a couple of times. And I, I had done a sports story. I don't really remember what it was, um, but I knew that I wanted to do something in either sports or music, two areas that I had literally grown up in. I was also raised around the music industry. So I knew one way or another that I wanted to go into one of those two fields. The other thing that I always knew I was fascinated by um, was storytelling. I was always so interested in the fact that every single one of us has an entire different story. We could do a movie on every single person on the planet. And there is enough about our lives that we could create an entire movie or a story or an article or a book. So that was always really fascinating to me. I didn't see strangers as just people. I I recognized people as someone with an entire backstory and a life and relationships just like mine. So having that awareness from an early age really helped me figure out what I wanted to do early. So I, I was in my sophomore year of high school, just at my public high school. And uh, I'm from New Jersey and in the County that I'm from, they had vocational schools and they were like career focused academies. Uh, You tested into them. And while you were there, it was a really advanced curriculum. So you took your math, your science, you know, all of like the the gen eds that you you do in high school, but you also focused on whatever the career academy was. So after my sophomore year, I transferred to a school called Communications High School. You can guess (laughs) what we focused on. Um, And I went there because I wanted to do journalism. Um, but the program that allowed me to transfer in didn't allow for me to do the journalism track. So I was introduced into like the world of design and art and video and photo. And in that experience, I learned a lot about all of the different ways that we can tell stories. So when I think about like my career and all of the evolution, really just me as a person, it's really always come back to the basic how can we tell this story and what is the story, which is obviously yeah. like the entirety of journalism. So, no, of course, I think that's really cool that you were able to discover what <laughs> journalism was like as early as middle school. I feel like that's not necessarily a thing. A lot of people can discover that early on. Just curious. Did you have like a story, whether that was like a, a video story, a written story like that you really looked up to like in middle school or high school, you said you really loved the process of storytelling and music. Did you have like a movie sports movie, like an article? Like, do you remember like a specific story that like rings a bell for you that you like looked at? So I'm weird in that. Like I know a lot of other journalists came up reading like the New York times or the players tribune or whatever, like Uh, were having movies and books that they were super inspired by. And that's why they wanted to become a journalist. Um, To be totally honest and transparent, my like journalism literacy and media literacy, like wasn't really that, like, I I wasn't just, I didn't watch a lot of movies. I didn't really watch a lot of TV. Instead, I was really inspired by a few teachers that I had. Um, my sophomore year of high school, I had an English teacher and really I was more inspired by books, literature, English literature. And, um, I was more inspired by instructors who could give us the grapes of wrath, make us read a 600 page book about the dust bowl and turn it into like an incredible lesson for life. So now we're talking about books instead of people, but (laughs) <laughs> the same yeah. idea, right? There's there's more to the story. What you read isn't actually the story. It's the story behind that. So um, 
yeah, it was, it was really less of work that inspired me that I really looked up to and more Mr. Gardner in my sophomore year of high school. And then I also had shout out Mr. Gardner. Um, and then I also had another instructor, um, at my communications high school where we, we did, it was called humanities class, but really we just watched movies and films that had massive impacts on society. Um, and we kind of broke down like the, the symbolism behind it and, and like how like film and movies really carry so much more story than the average person even knows. Um, and so that's significant because I, I did a brief stint in like documentary storytelling and, and video, and that's where that inspiration came from. So short answer, no, no specific works from journalism, <laughs> yeah. um, but people, people, and that, that's a very common theme in my life. It's very people centric. And, um, so, yeah. No, that's really cool. I wish when I was in high school, I had more of a passion for English. I was always a math whiz for some reason. And then I came to Cronkite and now I do journalism stuff. But uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I, I remember, I wish my English classes, you, yours seemed better than mine. Not, not trying <laughs> to, you know, talk bad about my English classes, but the whole life lessons thing, you know, just like reading novels. I wish I was into reading I don't read novels. So that's something on my bucket list. I'll have to do that as I get older. But let me transition into your decision to go to Virginia Tech because you sort of had this balance between like you like, you know, literature and music and sports. And so you majored in multimedia journalism when you went and got your bachelor's. So just talk about briefly your experience at Virginia Tech. And how that experience sort of led you to Arizona State to specifically focus on sports, even though you had like these other underlying interests as well. Yeah, Virginia Tech, hands down, four, not the greatest years of my life, but four of top best years of my life. Um, I ultimately decided to go to Virginia Tech because I went there for the first time. I was on campus for 15 minutes and I, I fell in love. I felt at home. I looked at my dad and I was like, I'm going here. That's it. We were like, it was the second school we visited and we were on like a tour of a bunch of schools. At the time, my dream school was UNC Chapel Hill, right? Like the, the school you go to for journalism in your undergrad or at the time it was for me. Um, and I came to Virginia Tech and I took a tour of campus and I remember asking the tour guide, like, you know, do you have journalism as a major here? And he like looked at me and was like, this is, a, this is a polytechnic school for like engineers and math and pre-med and all of this stuff. And you want to come here for a liberal art? Um, and so when I think about my time at Virginia Tech, I, I, I think of the impact it had on me, like to be able to technically do my job very well. Um, and when I focus on multimedia journalism, it was the very first or second year of the multimedia journalism track. Previous to my time there, it was print journalism. So I was one of the first classes, I believe, that um, did kind of this transition into, you learned how to write, but you also learned how to tell stories for the web instead of for a newspaper. You learned um, basics with camera, but we were also trained a little bit in broadcast. And so I got a lot of experience in the different facets of journalism. Um, but again, I mean, like I can, I said this in Claudia's class, I can, I can set up a camera blindfolded at this point. Like I know the ins and outs of audio. If I have an issue, I can troubleshoot. And so when I think of Virginia Tech, I think it gave me the, the best foundation for the journalism that we, like the world of journalism we live in today, where you have to be able to do everything yourself. And then as far as the storytelling goes, um, I think of my, my four years in my undergrad as a time where I really decided what was important to me. Um, so I, I obviously I majored in journalism, but I also took a lot of time and I, I minored in psychology, political science, and I really familiarized myself in things outside of sport because I, I had this, this struggle where I was like, you know, oh, I was at a school with engineers, people who were literally going to go change the world, people who were working to get Flint clean water. And I'm over here like covering a football game. So I had this weird guilt. And um, so I expanded and I studied 
psychology and international relations, just so I had, again, a good foundation. No matter where I went, I would be able to do more than just sports. Now, while I was pursuing my bachelor's degree, I also worked full-time pretty much um, for the wrestling team at Virginia Tech. So uh, while studying all of these other things that weren't just sport, I was still extremely involved in the one sport that I've always really been passionate about. So I got my experience uh, and I stayed like relevant in sport in that way while then I studied other things, which honestly is a pretty important thing to do during your undergrad. Um, I always tell people, you know, specialize in what it is that you wanna do, but take those annoying gen ed and elective and requirements, like take them seriously and take each class and think how can this comparative government class make me a better journalist or make me a better storyteller? Why would taking a World War II class benefit me? Well, today, if you're a journalist, it would definitely benefit you to understand the history of Europe, of Eastern Europe and all of the impacts of like past wars and stuff like that. So uh, that's when I think of my time at Virginia Tech, my four years there, they really shaped me as a person more than as a journalist, which then of course brings me to ASU where I was really formed as a journalist. Yeah, I think something that you mentioned earlier that I that kind of just like rang a bell for me is you, you talked about like learning the technical way around journalism. And I don't know if this is right. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I almost think of like, you know, the process of how to do things like, you know, like how to set up a camera and how to fix those technical things. And I think something that I sometimes struggle with and I've gotten better at is instead of focusing on the product, you have to focus on the process towards it. Right. And so that's mm -hmm. something I've sort of like building on. So I just want to sort of pick your brain and have you really emphasize how important do you think it is to just learn those like specific skills and like almost is the pro is the process and like the setup to like the product more important than what the finish line is or like what the final product is, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, uh, they're equally as important, but you have mm -hmm. to think that without the technical base and foundation, without the means to capture the story, there is no story to distribute, right? You can, you can receive a story, you can do all of the interviewing, you can, you can get great quotes from your source, but if you don't have a, an effective way to deliver it that in a way that people care, then your story doesn't actually exist, right? So when it comes to, especially today, where not many people read that much anymore. People don't like to read long, beautiful, well thought out articles that took months and months to write. They'd rather watch you know, a one minute summary of, of what happened, or they'd rather just see someone talk and tell their story. So the technical foundation and all of the technical aspects, so easy to be like, oh, well, maybe I'll be at a TV station and I'll have a photographer that does this. So they can just set up the mics and set up the camera and the tripod and stuff like that. But it really helps you like understanding the possibilities of the avenue in which you tell the story because you have an understanding of all of the technical things just creates more like more possibility for the story, right? Like when I think of any story, I think of, okay, this would be the print version or, or the web version or whatever, but then this is how I would tell the story through video. And this is how I would then cater that video to be, you know, distributed via social media. And so it all starts with a good understanding of how it all works. Um, I always say that if you want to go into journalism, you need to know how to operate a camera and you need to know the basics of audio, of you know, why isn't your camera in focus? You don't have to be an expert in, in Nikon or Sony or, or Canon, but you need to know, you know, the basics of any camera. Um, you need to know, you know, at what point is your audio screwed up and you can't fix it. And then, you know, you either have to bury your pride and go back and redo an interview, or you have to figure out a different way. Um, so there's so many things in, in like the technical aspects that are so important. Like we can forgive crappy video, but we can't 
forgive crappy audio. And there's, it goes even deeper into like the psychological side of how your audience is going to receive whatever it is that, that you're giving them. Is it interesting? Is it engaging? Does it look good? Does it sound good? There's so much more to it. And while, you know, you could have the most incredible story, if you don't deliver it in a way that engages people, that is interesting, um, that keeps people's attention, then you're not really doing the story justice. So definitely super important. I I think that's great advice. I that's something, you know, again, that I think me and many other people work on really that specific example. I, I always struggle with like a, a mic connecting to the camera and that audio. And it's just little things like that. Like if I can master that, then everything else would be easier. So I, I, I just, that was awesome. I just wanted you to break down kind of like how the process is just as important. So that's cool. Um, I want to touch on your days at ASU a little bit. Um, so I know when you talked with my class earlier, going in and and getting your master's and not being there for an entire four-year period in specific scenarios for people that are either going to um, like get a master's degree in the sports field or people that are transferring and getting something in the sports field where you only have like one and a half to two years. How did you sort of balance your time? Because I, I know for me, it's like there's the shot clock in the back of your head. It's like, oh, I have less time than everybody else. I'm basically on times two speed. How did you sort of navigate your time at ASU and focus and, and find a focus, not just sports, but we talked about how MMA is sort of your path. So how did you find that path and find exactly where you wanted to go in such a small period of time? It's hard because like I said, I've always, I've always known what I wanted to do. And I was super fortunate. I also think about my cohort. Um, when I was going through the grad program, we had maybe about 50% of us or less went and did our undergrad in journalism. The rest were career switchers or people who changed fields completely. And I, I was in awe at what our career switchers is what we called them, but like what some of the people in my cohort accomplished and now what they're doing and the, how quickly they learned. It was, it was honestly incredible. But I think the one thing we all had in common was we knew we had three semesters at the, the greatest journalism school on planet earth. We had literally three semesters and that was it. And, and then off into the world, there's no more, oh, I'll go get, when you finish with undergrad, you can always say, mm, maybe I'll go get a master's. But once you finish your master's degree, like there's, there's nothing else other than a doctorate, which we don't necessarily do very often in journalism early on. Um, so the biggest thing that I kept in the forefront of my mind was I have three semesters. That is it. In fact, what are they? 15 weeks. So I had 45 weeks and then my time was done. So as difficult as it was to be a grad student who also worked, um, who was in a, a dedicated relationship, like there was so much more to just it wasn't just school, but yeah. school was the number one priority because of the limited amount of time I had. The other thing that uh, I think I've said in the class before, you get out what you put in. So if you take four classes in a semester instead of five, then you know you might be able to manage your time a little better. You might be less stressed. You might have more of a social life, but what would you have learned in that fifth class? Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, If you're struggling between choosing between two classes, which happened to me at one point, I said, okay, as difficult of a decision as this is, who do I want to learn from? ASU is the, one of the most incredible things is, is how amazing across the board, no matter what class you're in, you step into a classroom and the accolades of the person teaching that class are, are incredible. And they have such good, you know, like life experience, career experience, Um, so it's more than just a class too. Like you should take that time and try to learn as much as you possibly can, not just about the curriculum, but Hey, how did you get to where you are? What were some of the struggles that you had? If you had one piece of advice, you know, what would you give a really common thing at ASU? Of course, at the end of every class, anytime there's a guest speaker, anything, 
they open the floor to questions. And there's usually, especially with undergrad or people who are just kind of like new to journalism, there's always that like moment where it's really quiet and nobody wants to ask the question. And then someone goes, well, you're journalists, you should have questions ready. Mm. Um, that really always, that really always stood out to me because it's true. I mean, like you should always be more curious than you have to be. Always ask more questions than you need to. You never know where one question will take you, what you'll learn from it. Um, so managing the time was difficult, but like you said, it was like a shot clock or, um, I, I thought of it more as just like this giant countdown of, mm, yeah. of time. Like when I thought about my time, that's what I saw. I just saw this, like this clock counting down the 45 weeks that I had until my time was up. So I always say you get out what you put in and you, you have to decide, you know, like we only get one life. We only get one chance to be in undergrad. We only get one chance to be in grad school. You'll never get that time back, but so people, you know, sometimes people struggle and they lean more toward like, um, you know, I want to go out and party instead. This is the only time I can do it. And that's fine. That's, that is a-okay. Everyone needs to do that every now and then. But yeah. also we have to understand like, you know, you're, you're paying, you're paying for that time as well. Not yeah. just with you, not just with your time, but literally with your money, um, with your mental and emotional bandwidth. Um, so yeah, I just always kept in the forefront of my mind, like once this time is gone, I'm never getting it back. So it's really, really corny and cliche to say this, but I was very much so like a live in the moment, kind of like a YOLO kind of person. I can't believe yeah. I just said that. Uh, yeah. So um, it's, it's difficult to always be like that and always think like that for weeks and weeks and semesters and years on end. But by the time it's done, you never want to be like, dang, should I have taken that class? Or should I have, should I have maybe like gone and done that one thing I turned down because I wanted to go to the gym instead, or I wanted to go take a nap or go out with my friends. Like you never want to get to the end of your time and be like, what more could I have done instead? You want to get yeah, to the end and yep. be like, there is nothing more I could have done. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that, you know, just whether it's writing or if journaling stuff like that just figuring out what you do and don't like you know like all of those ways are, are good ways to sort of balance your time and stuff like that um so we're almost done talking about your path and then we'll sort of shift over to the social media end of things but let's just talk about how you chose your path of okay i want to be in mixed martial arts and then just briefly talk about your lead up to ufc and sort of what you do with them today yeah so um like I said, I had come up all the way back to high school. I had come up um, in sports and growing up in New Jersey, wrestling was very, very common. And it was like a really popular sport. So all of my friends did it. So I like when I was an athletic trainer, I would work with the wrestling team and I would go to all of the matches. So by the time I got to Virginia Tech in a state that doesn't really have uh, at the time, it didn't really have this like big wrestling program. It wasn't super popular. Um, I was one of very few people who could write and talk and think about wrestling in an appropriate way. I mean, people didn't genuinely didn't know the terms and didn't know how to ask questions or interview people about wrestling. Cause you know, it's a pretty niche sport. So, um, that's how, you know, I kind of moved into the wrestling realm, which I worked in D1 wrestling for seven seasons, um, like eight ish years. And, you know, during that time, you see more than just the sport, like you see more than just matches. Um, you see what goes in every single day, day in and day out, two, three, four a day workouts, people cutting weight, um, all of the, the discipline and, and just the hard work that goes into it. And then the individualistic aspect of wrestling was always super fascinating to me. So between my undergrad and then going to grad school, working in wrestling that whole time, um, I knew I wanted to work in combat sports. While I was at ASU, I did branch out and I was like, well, this is the time to try baseball and to try the NFL and to try the NHL and see, you know, if I liked it. And I did like hockey, but, um, you know, my, my personal experience was that 
the athletes I interacted with in all of the other sport leagues were nothing compared to the athletes I interacted with in combat sports. And again, this is just my experience. This is not a knock on any athlete at all. It's not even a knock on people that I've interacted with, but I, I just receive a lot more respect. Isn't the right word. I just feel like I'm on kind of, I'm treated as if I'm on the same level as some of the athletes here, here being UFC, but also in wrestling, um, because, you know, it's a sport that not many people care about combat sports kind of freak people out. So they, they stay away from it. Um, because of that, there isn't as much of like celebrity status personalities that you have to deal with. People are a little more down to earth. They're always willing to work with you. And the other thing that was interesting to me that really drove me toward combat sports and UFC was every single story was incredible. I mean, especially here at UFC, we have, you know, athletes from all over the world, truly all over the world that have to they battle their way here. It's never easy to get to the UFC or even to any professional promotion. Um, and every story is so different too. It's so different, but in a way it's kind of the same because it all comes down to the same idea of discipline and hard work and respect and putting in so much effort to get here and so much sacrifice. Um, that's present in every sport. I just resonated and connected with it more in combat sports. So when I was at ASU, I was working for the wrestling team, which created a conflict of interest for me. I couldn't report on any ASU wrestling, which was fine. Um, so I was assigned during my time in the bureau to work in um, MMA and then social issues in sport. Those were like my two beats. Mm-hmm. And even prior to the bureau, I had um, made a connection with uh, at the time, uh, a UFC athlete. And while I was working with him, he became a champion. He became a double champion and retired. So I got to see like the peak of a career that like plateau at the peak and then the retirement and the end of a career. And that to me was really the selling point. I mean, mm-hmm. while working with, his name was Henry Cejudo, while working with Henry, I was also exposed to some athletes who weren't champions that were just making it to the UFC and they were training partners for years, just trying to get noticed, just trying to get fights. Um, And so while getting to see like the top of the sport, I was also exposed to people more at the bottom of the sport who had to work their way up. So that was honestly probably the life-changing experience for me where I was like this is definitely what I want to do this is the sport this is the organization I'm not really going to settle for anything else um so after I finished um grad school um, I made a personal decision to not pursue a job with UFC uh I felt as if I wasn't necessarily ready for it uh which if you ever get that feeling ignore it you are ready for it. Um, but, uh, the personal decision was also fueled by my husband is from Ohio. He was a division one wrestler. And so for almost a decade, he didn't get to go home, spend time with his family. He had young sisters. So we decided, okay, let's go to Ohio. I had a job lined up, um, that seemed as if it it would align with what I wanted to do. Um, and we made the decision to, you know, for once put family first and, and, just take a year. We got married during that year. Um, and the universe worked itself out. Um, the job that I had didn't work out. I lost it because of COVID. And then, um, you know, I was unemployed through my marriage. And then right after things settled down, the UFC opportunity kind of literally got dropped into my lap, um, by another Cronkite alum. So, um, it just, there were so many like signs pointing, I don't know, it, it felt very natural. And again, I felt like I was really gravitating toward this position. Um, so the position was something that I had never really done before. I had done a little bit here and there of, um, like content management and, and web stuff. Like I, I knew how to navigate the back end of a website. I have very basic knowledge of coding, but it was never something I did full-time. And I was a little nervous by the idea. I was a videographer. I was leaving 
you know, my, my shot at becoming like a documentary videographer, storyteller, whatever, I, I left that behind and said, okay, I don't really need to do video. I can live without it. And, um, you know, I, that decision, I have not thought twice about ever since I made it. I, I don't find myself being like, man, what would it be like if I was still doing video right now? I still do it here and there, but um, what I do at UFC is, you know, manage the content for a global website, a global company, a global sport. Like I said, we have athletes from every continent, except obviously Antarctica. Um, so every habitable continent we have an athlete from. So we, um, you know, we cater content to not just the United States. Um, you know, we're telling the stories of people in Brazil. We're telling the stories of people in Kazakhstan, of people in Italy, all over the world there is a story that we're telling. And um, so that is how I, I kept the storytelling part intact. Um, but I figured, you know, why don't I branch out? I've always, every time I've done a new job, I've always taken on something different. And it's honestly the dream job. It's all of the things that I really loved about journalism without the things that I did not love. Um, and so I said this in Claudia's class, super corny. I wake up every day. I come in to the office. I literally am in awe. I'm like, I, I get to do this every day. This is my job. Uh, and for a while there, when I was unemployed, I was like, those people who say, you know, find a job you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Like that's bullshit. That's not real. They're just saying that they were having a good day. It is real. I can confirm <laughs> it's not bullshit. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me is I, I took the time during undergrad and during grad school to figure out what did I want to do? What did I love about what I was doing? What did I hate about what I was doing? How can I avoid the things that made me unhappy? Hunting down sources gave me pretty severe anxiety. I couldn't do that every day of my life. So how do I, how do I find a job that kind of doesn't have to do that part as much? Um, we all have things that we love and things that we hate. So you kind of have to like really take a step back and be like, okay, what can I stand yeah. for doing every single day of the next 40 years or however long <laughs> and not get to the end of that journey and be like, oh, could I have done more or something different? <laughs> yeah. I, I love the, I love the dream. Keep the dream alive. I, I love that. Definitely. You know, I, I, definitely growing up. It's like, you always hear that, you know, you don't have mm -hmm. to work a day in your life. You know, you work at your dream job. And I love how transparent you were about how that's not real, but like, no, like it's real. That's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's great. Um, okay. So I want to sort of shift our focus over to social media, but I hope we kind of covered generally your path. I, I think we covered, you know, a decent amount. I don't know if there's anything I'm leaving out, but I know we are running out of time a little bit. So I do want to focus a little more on the social media aspect. So let me ask you this, something I've, I've just been thinking about is like, I feel like in, you know, a lot of videos and self-help stuff, you always see, oh, you know, you shouldn't be on social media this amount because it's, you know, toxic. Don't be on your phone all day. So I want to know for you personally, what is your social media slash media intake? Like, do you wake up and go on your phone? Do you wake up and stay off your phone and do like a routine? Do you feel like you have a healthy or not healthy media intake? I'm just curious because you literally, that's your job. So I'm just and I feel like that's going to be a lot of our jobs is we literally have to be on social media, but people around us are like, no, don't be on social media all the time. So I'm just curious what your thought on that is. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it is, a, it's a double-sided sword, honestly, mm -hmm. because it is so bad for you, right? Like they've actually, there has been a proven connection that like social media is addictive. The same sort of chemicals that fire in your brain that say, okay, this is addictive personality. That is what we experience when we see this instant gratification on social media. And then over time, you're not even thinking and you're just scrolling for hours and hours, mm -hmm. right? That's not healthy for anyone. Um, I'd say that my media intake varies between a healthy level and an unhealthy level. Um, and I, I do notice that, I mean, it just depends on the time of year, what's going on in my life. Um, right now I've, I've admittedly been doom scrolling a lot. Um, but I notice a connection between 
whether, you know, if my intake is a healthy amount, I'm not waking up, opening my phone right away. I'm so much happier. I'm so much more productive versus if I wake up and I look at my screen time and realize I spent nine hours on my phone yesterday, somehow, I don't even remember being on my phone for nine hours. Then you kind of start to like spiral down a path that's not conducive to your health or your efficiency at work. So the answer is there is no answer. (laughs) It depends. Yeah. Um, And I think that that is something that everyone experiences. You know, you can't be on 24 seven, just like you can't be off 24 seven. So it's kind of on us to find the healthy balance of like, what can we handle versus, you know, at what point is, you know, our social media starting to have an effect on our health. Um, Another big thing you have to remind yourself is your social media is not real. It's not reality in the way that in two different ways. One, we compare ourselves to other people on social, right? Um, or other brands or other sports, whatever it is, we're always comparing because we see this beautiful, shiny um, brand image, whatever that's presented to us without seeing the reality behind it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's difficult about social is, you know, our Twitters, our Instagrams, everything. It's an echo chamber that we create, right? So if you log on to my Twitter, your experience is going to be way different than if I log on to yours. Mine is, um, you know, it's a lot of combat sports people. Um, and it's right now it's a lot of, of political science, um, experts. Apparently a lot of people got their doctorate in the last, you know, four weeks in, (laughs) in, uh, Eastern Europe and the history. Um, and so it just, you know, the one thing we really always have to do once I feel I've been really sucked in and I'm like, wow, this is just consuming my thoughts and, and my behavior. I have to take a step back and be like, okay, this isn't really reality, right? This is the reality I've created my, for myself virtually by the people that I follow, the way that I interact with, um, you know, content and stuff like that. And so it's definitely a delicate balance, but understanding how it works is really important. Um, and also, yes, a lot of us will have to use social media frequently for our jobs. Um, but what I do personally is what I try to do personally is, um, you know, if I get home from work, I try to put my phone down somewhere that it's not in my hand and I'm not carrying it with me. I'm not using it while I'm cooking dinner and then using it while I'm laying in bed. Um, I have a work phone. I usually leave it in my desk or I leave it in my backpack. I don't even take it out. Um, And in the morning a change that I've noticed that has made a big difference is my phone is like literally on the other side of my room. Uh, It used to be next to my bed and I would wake up and I would, without even thinking, turn off my alarm and then open Twitter. And I would scroll for like 30 minutes every morning. Um, So yeah, I mean, the reality is we have to be glued to our phones for our job. But the other reality is that we're humans and we definitely need a break and need to be able to find a balance. And that that's going to be different for every person. Yeah. It's a never ending dilemma. I feel like I know, you know, one week I'll wake up and I'll go on Instagram or Twitter for a half hour before I get up. And like you said, it really, it's like, if you start your day like that, it really just has a ripple effect almost on the rest of your day. So I just wanted to ask you because you're literally, your job is to be involved in in social media and just all sorts of media. So it's nice to see that you're able to kind of step back and uh, take a break and like put your phone to the side or in a drawer or a desk and stuff. So that's really cool. So last couple of questions I have for you. I know we got like 15 minutes. So um, I want to talk about just like personal branding on social media and then also like branding like podcasts or just like specific like business stuff, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. let me just talk about like personal branding, because I feel like, especially in the sports journalism world, especially Twitter, I don't know, you know, Instagram and, you know, Snapchat, there's, there's everything else, but I feel like Twitter's really like where it's at in terms of just making connections. And that's where you, you know, grow your brand and stuff. LinkedIn's another good one. Right. So it's like, I just want to ask when it comes to personal branding, And, you know, not being authentic at the same time, I feel like that can be a hard balance to to find authenticity, but also to be like, hey, I look shiny, I do this. Uh, Just talk about how you've been able or advice that you would give for people in college or people getting into the sports industry. What's kind of like the blueprint to 
how you should be branding yourself on social media. That's a good balance of like authenticity, but also something that future employers and future jobs would want to see. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, you'll hear this a million times in your life, like nothing in the internet goes away ever. So that's a really, really important thing to remember. I know we can forget. It's so easy to forget that. And it's so easy to be like, I really want to say this thing so that people know that I know this or that I've done this, but like at the end of the day, nothing goes away. Right. And so keeping that at the absolute forefront of everything you do online is super, super important. Um, and then as far as, you know, personality goes and stuff, especially in journalism, it gets really, really complicated because you want to be you and you want to show your audience that you're a real authentic person that they can trust. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're trained to think and to express in a certain way that doesn't show our bias. Um, when I think about, especially at Cronkite and the social media policies there, when I think about how, how black and white it was taught, I think about that and it's, it's yes or no. Yes, you can say this. No, you can't say this. But in reality, it's a lot of gray area. Um, as a journalist, should I be expressing that I think the don't say gay law in Texas is completely inhumane? I probably shouldn't, but personally, I can't live with myself if I don't express my thoughts on that. Um, should we be commenting on certain, you know, just, just certain social issues or global issues? Does it reveal our bias? When it comes to, to dealing with this idea of bias in journalism, I ask myself, do I want people not to know how I feel about this? There are certain things I, I can live without people knowing, you know, that I feel a certain way about a certain topic. But then there are certain things that I just can't stand for that I think that sometimes, you know, like silence, um, does just as much damage. So obviously I'm not saying like go engage with people on Twitter and argue and tell people they're dumb for their opinions, whatever, all that stuff, you know, everyone's entitled to their own thoughts. But at the same time, there's a fine line between your identity as a journalist and your identity as a person. They are the same identity. So you really have to ask yourself like, you know, what's, what's important to me and my brand? what do I want to be viewed as? You know, I, I personally, I, you know, I want to be viewed as someone who is just kind to other people. I hope that I make an impact with the people I interact with virtually and not. Um, but at the same time, I've gotten into really dumb arguments with people on Twitter over really, really stupid things. And then I'm embarrassed after. And I'm like, at, in the moment, I'm like, oh, I'm going to teach this person. They're so stupid. And then after I'm like, wow, all of my I don't know, 2000 followers just saw me do that. And they can go back and read this dumb argument if they want to. So I found myself going back and like deleting stuff. And, and I was like, if I have to delete it, I shouldn't have said it in the first place. I shouldn't have engaged in the first place. So that's another thing, you know, you ask yourself, should I be tweeting this? If in the back of your head, you're, you're subconsciously being like, should I press send? The answer is no, you shouldn't be pressing send. Um, if you think I'll just go back and delete it later before that job interview, mm -mm, no, it's not actually going to go away. So if you think, oh, I'll go delete it later, don't even post it. Um, obviously that goes for, you know, our, our words on Twitter, but then also, you know, things that, that people post on Instagram and stuff like, um, it's a different type of identity, right? Words can only do so much. Whereas like photos and, and visual things on Instagram give you way more insight into someone's personality or at least the way that they appear. So same idea though. I mean, do you, how do you want people to see you? It's, it's such a basic idea, but yeah. it, it always kind of comes back to this will never actually leave me. It will always be behind me. So do I want this, you know, this photo, this thought, this argument to follow me? Maybe not in the forefront of everything I do, but it will follow me for my career, my life, my, my existence in this virtual space. Um, so it's, again, we're all different. It takes a lot of self-awareness, I think, to be like, what is my brand? What do I comment on? What don't I comment on? And it's something that you should be reevaluating like pretty regularly, especially because things change so quickly in this world and in this day and age. So 
Yeah. When you talk about just like your brand as a person, your brand as a journalist is the same thing. I, I found that like really interesting just because sometimes I don't think that, but when you say it, it makes sense. Right. And I know some people will have one Instagram or one Twitter account for everything. And then some people separate their work life and their personal life on Instagram or Twitter. And, you know, that I guess that's up to anybody, whatever they want to do with that. But um, let me ask you here, I'll try and make this a little quicker. Um, so for someone that's trying to like grow authentically, that's something I'm a big believer in. And I think, you know, people, you can always like, there's apps out there, you can follow and unfollow people like there, there's ways to like, you know, grow your numbers. But in terms of authentic growth and seeing like consistent growth over time, what are like a two or three keys to do through social media, whether that's, you know, posting consistently, uh, how you brand your account, your target audience, just like with your experience and maybe just working with such a big organization such as UFC, what are just a couple of things or a couple pieces of advice you'd give to someone that's trying to authentically grow their, their brand or something they're working on? Before I answer that, uh, the journalist uh, in me has to make a correction. I said Texas's don't say gay bill. It was actually Florida. Anyway, okay. to answer your question, though, <laughs> um, to answer your question, the biggest thing when I think about authentic growth, why should people follow me? How do I grow my following? Um, it all comes back to knowing your audience, right? So chances are you have an audience already established. Even if you only have a couple hundred followers, you have a demographic. And chances are that demographic is not going to change. Your content and your presence has already attracted a certain type of person, a certain type of user. So, you know, it would be silly for me to, I have a professional account where I post photos I've taken of our athletes. If I started posting photos instead of food, I would imagine that my audience would be like, where are the photos of Kamaru Usman? Why am I looking at your ramen? I don't want to, I didn't follow you for this. Um, so, you know, Instagram and Twitter both have tools that you can analyze your audience. And I think, you know, it sounds silly for me. I'm, I'm going to go audit myself on social media and, and figure out what my audience is. A lot of people think like, why would I do that for myself, for a company? Well, that's one thing, but honestly, it's really important to understand like who your audience is, where in the world they are. When should you be posting? Are they men? Are they women? What is their age range? Are they using... Instagram or Twitter on an iPhone, how about a desktop? Like these are all things that are also for an individual, but this is also how as a brand, we look at things. Um, any brand looks at things. For the most part, most users in our case um, are on mobile. So how do we curate our content in a way that's engaging on mobile? How do we break up our articles with photos so that the person scrolling on their phone and reading this article wants to read more? It's the same idea on Twitter um, and it's the same idea on Instagram. Um, I would say that if you're first starting out when it comes to growing an audience, apart from knowing your audience, um, having engaging content is so important. If you're posting one of your stories that you've written and you're really proud of on Twitter, you've got to have some sort of media item. Otherwise people are going to see a link. They're not going to want to click it. They're going to keep scrolling. So a, an engaging photo or a screenshot of the beautiful interview you set up will, will go a long way. It will stop people, even if it's just for a split second, it will stop them from scrolling. Maybe they click on your link, maybe they don't, but maybe they follow you for it. Cause they're like, oh, Mackenzie's reporting on MMA. That's kind of interesting. Or, oh, she's working with someone who's a double champ. That's pretty cool. I think I'm gonna follow this person. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I, it all comes back to knowing your audience, knowing what works with them. Do they like photos versus video? If you post a graphic, are people going to engage in it? Or are they just going to be like, oh, I've seen enough infographics today. I'm going to keep going. Um, so that is, is definitely the number one thing. Now, I wish there was an easy answer to growth. I would love like a thousand more followers on both of my social media platforms. Um, but again, I think that also comes down to like, are you being authentic to yourself, but also to the brand that you've created for yourself? Um, at this point in our lives, we have all created a brand, especially, I mean, like people, 
people who have grown up on social media and weren't around for the launching of Twitter when you had to text in tweets or the launching of Instagram where you could only post one photo at a time with no caption. Um, like these are things um, that even though, you know, social media has evolved, our presence and our brand has already been created. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're all of a sudden you're concerned with, um, let's not make it political. If you work in soccer and all of a sudden you start posting about golf regularly um, and people start to unfollow you and you realize like, wow, I lost 50 followers this week, what's going on? You might wanna take a step back and like analyze your content and be like, okay, so what have I been doing differently? Obviously people don't like it. Um, so yeah, it. at the end of the day, the audience is the most important thing. What works, what doesn't, what do people like, what don't they like? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, okay, I got one more question for you. We got like two to three more minutes. I wanna squeeze this in though. So okay. internships is a huge thing in college, right? Something that everybody's looking for. I know you've been through internships. I know UFC is always looking for internships. And so my last question for you is, I guess coming up for the summertime or just even looking into the fall or just going after internships in general, what is the main piece of advice that you would give to sort of separate yourself or to make yourself stand out, whether that's for, I know UFC has internships this summer, whether that's for UFC or just in general, what would you say is sort of the best way to, I guess, separate yourself from the hundreds of other people that are going to be applying to the same internship? So my advice right off the bat, it's going to be kind of the same as what other people say. Um, Your resume should be flawless, right? Your resume should be catered to the position that you're applying for. If you're applying for a job in social media, I don't care that you've worked in broadcast or I I don't really care that much. It's probably not going to have an impact on your ability to work in social media. Or, you know, if um, most of my work has been in videography to apply to the job that I have now, I, I had to kind of change it and highlight what other ways have I made myself well-rounded and valuable for this position? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to take off like my shiniest and greatest things on my resume, which kind of hurt, but you know, catering your resume, your cover letter, please, for the love of God, write cover letters. Um, you know, all of those things are, it's the first thing somebody sees. They don't see you first. They see your resume. So in the same idea of like this virtual presence that we have on social media, what our brand is, your resume is the same exact thing. Um, if I have a stack of resumes and I'm, you know, going through and I just don't like the way it looks, I'm probably going to keep going. If I see a typo, I'm a hundred percent going to keep going. Um, all of the things that, you know, every, everyone says the same thing, no typos. It's got to look good. I have to understand. It's got to be concise. Um, the best piece of advice I've ever received on a resume bit was, um, a lot of employers look at the place you've worked, the job title and the time you were there. They don't really read what's below it. So keep that concise, use really good words, vocabulary. That's like engaging, um, and keep it, keep it different. Don't use the same word over and over again. Don't say you're efficient in this and efficient in that. Say that you are an excellent leader, um, that you have five years of experience in the create, Adobe Creative Suite, not that you're proficient in it. Um, so just remember that you know one single piece of paper represents you. And is it going to be enough? Is it gonna be good enough? The other side of internships um, that I didn't touch on with you yet, I don't think I touched on in Claudia's class either. Um, A big turning point in my career uh, in 2016, I applied for a bunch of internships for the summer. And I remember getting an email saying that Team USA was having an internship for the summer, but it was in social media. At the time, social media was not a thing that you did professionally. And, you know, it wasn't journalism to me. It wasn't what I wanted to do. So I saved the email and then forgot about it. And right before the deadline, I was like, oh, I should apply for this thing. Applied for it, forgot about it, got the internship. It ended up being literally a turning point, like a giant catalyst in my career. So when you see things and you see positions and you're like, I'm going to be an anchor. I don't want to go do this photo editing internship. Um, 
don't count things out is what I'm saying by, you know, the job description or the title, or even if it's not in sport, you can still learn things, you know, you can learn things from any position, um, from any company, from any sport. So a lot of things I see so commonly is people counting something out because it doesn't fit the box they think they're going to be in. Um, but my biggest thing is, you know, the box will change and you want to be the most well-rounded person you want. If you want to be a journalist, if you want to be on air, you also need to know how to work the camera. You should have a good social media presence. You should probably know how to navigate WordPress or a CMS. Um, so if you're not getting that experience in class or in your job that you might have, then you should be looking for that in an internship. So um, I'll never forget the moment that I was, I was in, uh, on the bus on my way to work at Virginia Tech and was like, social media, what? That's professional now? And was like, I'll apply to it later. And if I just never had, it like yeah. literally changed my life. So um, I always say, don't count something out before you've at least given it a chance or like 10 minutes of your attention um, because it could be something that changes the trajectory of your whole career. Okay, real quick, when it comes to resumes, a big debate. Is a black and white resume better than a very bold, colored, you know, looks fancy resume? I don't know if you've looked at resumes, but just being kind of near our age range, what would you say employers are looking for? Black and white or nice and pretty? Um, the quick answer is both um, okay. because your resume might be when you submit it online, it doesn't it's not presented in the pretty way that you see it as a PDF. Um, a lot of like resume scanners will convert your resume to black and white on screen. And it, it just looks for buzzwords that match the job description. Um, that's another really important thing. Read the job description, take that language, apply it to your resume and your cover letter. So one, you don't want your resume to be this like really busy, um, bright colored, lots of like emojis or like symbols and stuff. I, I mean, I have symbols on my resume, but I also make sure that those words are somewhere else because it's yeah. a robot that's picking out the words that says this resume, you know, is an 85% match to the job description. Now that's one thing that I wish I had known earlier. Um, I usually have two resumes, one that gets uploaded to a site and then one that is displayed on my website that someone can see. Or if someone says, could you send me your resume? I send them my pretty design one. Um, but I always have a very simple one that I can upload just in case. Because I remember at one point I had applied to like 40 jobs. And then I found out that the way my resume was formatted, the bot that picked all of those words off couldn't read the words because it was a Photoshop PDF instead of being an actual PDF with words on it. Yeah. So um, keep that in mind. But then at the same time, my resume has like a really pale purple column and it separates things really nicely. And it, it kind of creates this divide where it's a little easier to look at if I've printed it out. Um, but I've someone sent a resume in one time that was like a, bl a bright blue background with white text and like that's just a no. Um, if you want to add a little bit of color, that's great. Uh, make it a light pastel color, not bright. Um, the other thing that's super important about a resume is make sure your name, the best way to contact you and your, your email address website. If you have it, that's got to go at the top. That's going to be the first thing I look for. Um, if you know, I'm a hiring manager or if I'm even in HR just screening resumes. The other thing that I've started to piece of advice I've started to give is if you really want an internship or a job and you have the means to relocate and it's not going to, you know, you're not going to go broke by moving to Las Vegas for the summer and you can afford it um, without any pay you might be receiving, remove the location. Because if I get a resume and it says that, you know, I'm in Blacksburg, Virginia, and I'm applying for an internship in Las Vegas you know, sometimes we think, is it fair to extend the offer to this person knowing they'll have to move all of their stuff? 
Um, so these are, and that's not something that like, to be clear, it's not something like we've ever done. We've never made a decision based on that, but like, and in any job that's never been like a, an outward deal breaker, but it does help, um, to not have you counted out. So if I yeah. see your name, your contact info, your website, and I'm engaged by that, I go to your website. I'm like, wow, this is, this person put in a lot of work. Let's, let's get them on an interview chances are in that interview, they're going to ask you right off the bat, where are you located? But at least they see you and at least they get to interact with you and talk with you and get a vibe yeah. for like who you are. Um, so just think of things like when you look at your resume, I, I scan my resume first. I say any typos, any spelling errors, grammar errors. Okay. What buzzwords can I use instead of these, you know, like synonyms that I've been using? Um, does it match the job description? And then I take one last look and I say, what would count me out from this position? What on my resume is saying, don't choose me because of this or that or this. Um, that's a big thing. That should always be your last step before you get ready to submit something. Um, Cause you know, you never want to count yourself out before you're even given a chance to get FaceTime in front of the people that might be employing you. Awesome. Okay. I have kept you way too fast your time. We'll wrap this up. I Sorry. talk a lot. <laughs> I, I have a tendency to do that as well. That's why I don't That's like okay. time limits. So I, I don't put a time limit on any of these. I just have a ballpark, but thank you so much. You gave incredible advice, just breaking down your journey. And again, I, it was just really interesting just hearing about social media from someone that lives within social media. And I think that was just really good inside. I think it was just, again, great advice. If you want to Follow Mackenzie on Twitter. Go follow her at, at M-P-A-V-A-C-I-C-H underscore just to see what she's up to and see everything that's going on. But again, thank you very much for hopping on How To Sports. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to How To Sports. To follow along for news, updates, and daily listener interaction, make sure to follow us on Twitter at HT Sports Show and Instagram, which is also the at HT Sports Show. You can listen to us on all podcast listening platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It was a pleasure talking to Mackenzie, and it's been a pleasure trying to serve a large community of sports industry enthusiasts. And until then, have a great day, and even a better day tomorrow. Peace.